Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Caroline Binham, our financial regulation correspondent. Down the line from Brussels, we have Jim Brunsden, who covers regulation for us from there. This week, we'll be looking at the latest EU plan to bail in banks' bondholders. Also, a look at the financial technology sector. And what are the latest goings-on at the FCA in the UK? Tell us about policymakers' mood here in Britain. Those are our themes for the year ahead, actually, for 2016. So a great one to start with is the new bail-in powers that the EU has begun to enforce Jim, you anchored a big piece on this in Tuesday's newspaper. Tell us, what does this mean? Why is it such a big deal for Um, Europe's banks? Yeah, I think it's a a very big deal because for the first time now, European policymakers and European banks are going to be confronted with the full reality of this thing they've created. So there were years of negotiations in Brussels, you know, tons of all-night meetings to thrash out deals on this new system for dealing with bank failure. And the mantra was, we have to end too big to fail, end the era of taxpayer bailouts, and force the losses instead onto banks' creditors. And there's been a rising sort of swell of of attempts to do that over the past few years. But now with the big bang of these rules, the full system is in place and a full wallop of all those rules, if you like, can take effect. And the broader context for this is the so-called banking union, whereby the EU and within the Eurozone in particular, there's far stronger central control of the banking system. Exactly. I mean, I think it comes back to that age-old EU mantra that where there's no trust, you must have rules. And I think when it comes to how countries, especially in southern Europe, manage their banks, there's now no trust, at least no trust from Brussels and no trust from Berlin. And so instead, you have to have rules. And so what they've done is they've bound themselves now into a kind of centralised regulatory straitjacket, if you like, where when a bank fails, there are certain rules that must be followed, pretty much whatever the consequences. And to make sure those rules are fully applied, the thing will be overseen by a centralised agency backed by a common fund, a fund which is financed by industry paid by the banking sector itself. I mean, these things can be overstated. The new centralised agency, it's called the Single Resolution Board. In fact, it brings, you know, national authorities, like national officials are involved in the decision-making mix, but it's still a very big step. Indeed. And it's got a prominent head. The SRB is headed by Elke Koenig, who was the former head of the German regulator. So plans are to make this an institution with heft. Let me bring Laura in at this point, because Laura, you were looking at the budget of the SRB and what that might tell us about the forecast, really, for how many banks are going to fail, in their view. Yeah, I mean, the SRB itself is certainly an institution which has heft. It obviously has a very prominent person at the head of it. But if they were to actually be involved in resolving a bank, they would need to bring in a lot of outside help to do the physical heavy lifting on that. So you're talking about bringing in accountants, bringing in legal firms to do the actual work. So they put out a tender where they have a contract size of up to €40 million, which they are saying will be the ballpark contract for the next four years for the firms who will do the actual work on the resolution. They're talking to people in 
those firms, they're saying that would allow them to resolve approximately 10 large banks over that time period. Now, the SRB itself has been quick to say that they can adjust that figure up or they can adjust it down depending on the level of demand there is. I mean, they aren't going to resolve 10 banks just because they have enough money to do it. But it is still interesting to see where they've kind of pitched the most likely point of it. Okay. Well, it's certainly the next phase in Europe's ongoing process of toughening its bank regulation. And I guess the next one to watch out for, Jim, will be on the deposit guarantee mechanism, which we know that it's incoming, but it's going to take quite a long time to put in place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that will be the big regulatory bun fight in Brussels for 2016. To be honest, I think when it came along, plenty of us in the media at least breathed a big sigh of relief because it kind of harks back to the glory days of 2011 through to 2013, where we had these massive chunks of financial regulation going through. It was incredibly controversial, sexy to write about. So clashes between the Brits and pretty much everyone else over banker bonuses and the fights between the Germans and pretty much everyone else over building the banking union. And so now there'll be an almighty bun fight over the deposit guarantee scheme because it's, it's a logical progression in building the banking union, but at the same time, the Germans are basically saying absolutely not. Let me just bring in Martin for a final word on this. Well, it's interesting to look at the activity in the run-up to the creation of the SRB because we've seen some of the struggling banks in Greece, in Italy and Portugal all accelerate right up until New Year's Eve almost the imposition of losses on creditors in order to restructure the finances of some of their most struggling banks. And the reason that these things have been accelerated is because they wanted to get these things done before the new body was in place and the new rules restricted their freedom of movement. You can look at that in two ways. You can look at that one way and say, well, now the new mechanism is in place, none of that nonsense can go on because they've upset a lot of investors in the arbitrary way that they chose which creditors to impose losses on and which ones not to impose losses on, particularly in Portugal. Or you could look at it and say, well, hang on a second, this sort of shows that actually a lot of the European countries and even the ECB itself don't have full confidence in the new system that's in place since the start of 2016. And therefore, they were rushing these things through before the new rules came into place. So will it, will it actually work? And it's, it's a big outstanding question. I think that's a question not just for the EU system, but globally for bail-inable bonds generally. Until the next crisis comes, we won't know whether it'll work. But we'll be a, a long time talking about these topics, I'm sure, over future podcasts. Let me stay with you, Martin, for the second topic of the day, another prediction for 2016 that so-called fintech financial technology companies are going to be a theme for the year. So 2015 was very much the year that banks lost their complacent attitude towards fintech. Banks had been very dismissive of some of these startup fintech companies that are digital payments, for instance, or peer-to-peer financing companies. And they'd said, oh, these are very small. They may be growing fast, but they're tiny and they'll get blown away by the next crisis. And our industry is protected by regulation. And over the course of the last year, we've seen the banks steadily realise that these aren't going to go away and that their industry is in the process of being fundamentally disrupted and start to take these new technology-driven business models and services much more seriously, especially as they've seen the likes of Google, Facebook, 
Apple all move into the financial services space and they've started to really kind of take it seriously. And my prediction for 2016 is that it'll be the year where the banks fight back, where the big banks start to do more either partnering with or totally acquiring some of these young startup companies and even potentially partnering with some of the bigger technology companies in order to try and come up with their own offers to compete with these smaller, fast-growing peer-to-peer lenders, the blockchain, for instance, you know, we saw last year Goldman Sachs file a patent for Settlecoin, which is going to be their attempt to provide a digital currency for investment banking markets to put on the so-called the blockchain, which is the technology behind Bitcoin. We saw JP Morgan recently team up with OnDeck Capital, a peer-to-peer lender for small businesses to use its own technology in its own offering to small businesses. So they're going to come up with their own offering. They're going to brand it as JP Morgan, but it's going to use the technology from this tech startup. And this kind of thing, I think, is going to be happening all throughout 2016. We're going to see a lot more of this. One final prediction on that, I think in a lot of cases, it will fail. Because as we've seen with previous disruptions of industries, it's very hard for the incumbents, like in the music industry, or the retail industry, or the travel industry, it's very hard for the incumbents to reform themselves from the inside. And it tends to be outside disruptors who take a big gain. And the incumbents often are left sort of scrambling and unable to change themselves quickly enough to adapt. So in some ways, what the incumbents are doing, the kind of acquisitions of these enterprises or collaborations, do you believe that that's a kind of heartfelt desire to get into this area? Or is it an attempt to stifle challenge? I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, when you see things like, for instance, BBVA, the big Spanish bank, you know, they bought a digital bank in the US called Simple. Um, They're integrating that into their platform. I don't think it's been a great success yet, but they really believe in this. They believe in, in the future of digital banking, the digital model. They've invested in Atom, which is a bank recently given a license here in the in the UK, and it's going to be a digital-only bank, and they bought a big stake in that. And I think they really believe that this is the future of banking. You see the likes of ING, another pioneer in this area. They've done a partnership with Cabbage, another US peer-to-peer lender in the small business space, and they're launching a service jointly with Cabbage in Spain to offer ING loans using the technology of Cabbage, a kind of automated approval service to lend money to small businesses in Spain. We'll see how it goes. I think there are some banks that are doing it for the right reasons. I think others are doing it for purely defensive reasons, and they will be less likely to succeed. You've got to say it starts to feel like a bit of a bubble when you get companies starting to call themselves names like Cabbage, but there we are. We'll (laughs) see if your predictions come true, Martin. Caroline, you've been waiting very patiently there for your topic and your theme for the year, which is really, I suppose, a continuation of something we saw last year in the UK, the kind of more benign attitude among policymakers towards the banking system and finance generally. And you see further evidence of that lately at the Financial Conduct Authority. Yeah, so the UK financial watchdog, the FCA, dropped a review it had announced earlier in the year into culture at retail and wholesale banks in the UK. This dropping of the review was only revealed by our colleague Emma Dunkley in the Financial Times last week, and it has caused a real furore here in the UK with the shadow chancellor, John McDonnell, saying the decision was a huge blow, that other politicians have accused George Osborne, the chancellor, of being behind it, which both the FCA and the Treasury deny. But I think one of the reasons the story had such legs, as we say in the industry, is because it fed into this wider theme of there being a definite 
changed in the mood music since last year's general election result with the outright majority Conservative win. And since then, there definitely have been several emollient moves towards the city against a background, we must remember, where two of the biggest banks, HSBC and Standard Chartered, were threatening to move their headquarters from the UK in a decision about which HSBC is yet to really resolve. Just a quick point on this FCA review. What might it have achieved? A review of culture sounds quite a a kind of um, woolly idea. What was the aim of it? Well, that's very true. It was a thematic review, which are really big deep dive explorations by the FCA across the industry into a particular subject matter. And typically thematic reviews will highlight best practice, but also worst practice. And then the really dodgy stuff can always get referred to the enforcement for a proper investigation. But I mean, if you speak to FCA insiders, they're quite befuddled as to why all this noise has come out of this news story because to them they said it was always going to be quite a small piece of work not many people really knew about it so in their defense they would say that a lot of other bodies are looking at banking culture at the moment amongst them the banking standards board and then the FIC market standards board as well and that it was going to be quite hard for them to prescribe banking culture to thousands of firms and it was going to be a lot more efficient to do it on a bank by bank basis. And of course, the Banking Standards Board is the industry-backed body which has been set up post-crisis in order to try and improve standards. That's right. And one of the points that some of the politicians have been making is that this review by the FCA really is needed to see if the BSB is actually affecting change in the right way. We've really seen over the past year a number of, we were trying to count them before Christmas, you know, I mean, we got up to 12 of examples where since the general election in the UK, the regulatory climate in this country has become more positive incrementally towards the banks, you know, be it changes to the bank levy, to extending of the funding for lending scheme, all of these different things. But really, it feels like the Tories, since they got a majority government in May, that there has been a bit of a drive to make slightly more bank-friendly climate in the UK. And I think that's also reflected in Europe and more internationally, that we're now seven, eight years on from the crisis, and it feels like the world is now saying, OK, well, let's get it on a more equal footing, this relationship with these banks, because we need them to boost lending and boost growth. I would just say for my prediction for the year going forward, a sort of continuation of a theme we saw in 2015, which is fewer big record-breaking busting fines on the banks as institutions and more focus on individuals being held to account. We've got this tough new regime in the UK called Senior Managers Regime, which is designed to improve accountability from the very top of banks. That's effective as of March. So I would predict the FCA and also the Prudential Regulation Authority both to be making use of that. And also, I mean, that feeds in well to the politics of the moment as well, which perhaps wants to take a slightly more relaxed stance to the banks as institutions and uh, very valuable taxpayers. But also, if there are heads on spikes, then that perhaps sates the public appetite. Interesting. We'll monitor that through the year, of course. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin, Caroline and Laura here in the studio and Jim down the line from Brussels. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Until next week, goodbye.